0: Hey everybody, listening via podcast. I don't usually start by talking to you, but this week's a little different because we lost the first few minutes of the recording from Sunday. So I'm about to re-record it and I just wanted to say thanks to those of you who listen weekly or just to catch up when you miss on a Sunday and explain why the audio will sound a little different. It, it'll just be the first minute or two and uh, you'll hear it splice into live audio, but we wanted to be sure you got the beginning so everything else made sense. So, began this week with a passage from Romans 4, starting in verse 13, which says this, for the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For this reason, Paul says in verse 16, for this reason it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We spent a lot of the fall kind of tracing this storyline, talking about who is God and how has He worked in the world as we look at what it is we believe. We started with this phrase from the book of Jude that we are to struggle for a faith that was handed down once for all of us. And so, in looking at what is that faith, what is it that we as Christians believe, we've followed the story of God, who He is, and how He's acted in the world, and we largely started with Abraham, and we followed the story from there to try to get a clearer view of what we can know and what we believe about God And about our faith. And I love this passage from Romans because Paul dips back into that early piece of the story to say that from the very beginning, not just starting in in Matthew, not just starting with Jesus and what we articulate as the gospel, as New Testament people, as members of the church, but from the very beginning, God's promise to his people, God's promise to Abraham and to all of us has been about faith, not about earning. His favor or love, not about doing anything on our own to keep his love, but about faith. He's emphatic here. Paul is emphatic here that God's promise rests on grace. It is a free gift to us, and it's guaranteed to all people by faith, not by following the rules. He's clear about that here in Romans chapter 4. He says, those who are Abraham's descendants, and the implication in the way that he writes this, not really even implication, it's explicit in the way that he writes this, that those of us who share Abraham's faith are his descendants. It says he's the father of us all because we share the same faith. So those of us who are his descendants have an inheritance that he says is guaranteed by not just any God, and he was writing in a time when there are lots of gods to choose from, but by the God who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things who do not exist. Our inheritance, just like Abraham's, is guaranteed by faith and that God, Paul writes. And I love that, that verse. I love that phrasing And I think it's there. I think he writes it in that way so strongly, both to shine a light on the sort of incomparable glory of God's grace and to remind us that everything that's coming for us from God has to to be received by faith. Because that description of a God like that requires faith. It defies logic. It defies us leaning on what we can see or what we can reason out. This, this notion that we could be given real and full life, that we could have an inheritance from a God who can bring life from the dead and who, who can call into existence something that doesn't exist, it has to be received by faith. That has to be a gift of grace. We could never, ever possibly earn that. And this is a setup for us understanding the whole of what we believe hinges on grace Because we have a hard time with grace. As desperately as we want it, we have a hard time believing that it's true. We have a hard time seeing and actualizing grace when it comes from another person, much less from a God described the way that Paul describes this God. I was reminded of one of my favorite little moments of grace that I've experienced in the last several years. Just recently, I was digging through the console of my car looking for something, and that's where I stick everything. But uh, especially like if you go through uh, Bahama Bucks and they give you the little punch cards, you know, coupons or whatever things you I stick all those in there. And I found some coupons to Rose's and I immediately remembered why, I've, why they've been there for like six years. Um, when uh, in the earlier group of six elders, we had elder lunch almost every single week at Rose's. And one, it was always, there was always the tension of uh, whoever arrived first, we had a regular table that was our table on, two, uh, on Tuesdays if we arrived on time. Um, but there was also a church ladies group, not this church. Some other church ladies group who like that table, <clears throat> so we like to get there before them so that we could get our table. This particular week we did not, um, and so we would find some other measly table and give them the side eye while we had elder meeting. But we're at this other table, is unusual spot for us. And Elder uh, Roses has these lamps that hang down right over the table. Remember who complained? But Adam. Uh, Dr. Sines had a very scientific solution of reaching up and just unscrewing that light bulb just enough that the light went out and we didn't have it shining in our faces, which is a great solution until 10 seconds later when the light bulb dropped out of uh, the fixture onto the the, uh, tile table at Rose's and exploded over all of our food. Tiny shards of bulb all over all of our food. Um, And so Adam felt bad. He found out what we all ordered, went back up, we reordered. He paid for all of our meals a second time. And then as Rose's folks were cleaning up the glass, because we found a third table to sit at at that point, um, as they were cleaning up the glass, they found out what happened, and they took Adam's card, and they refunded uh, him paying for all of our food the second time. And they came back to our table a few minutes later, later and gave us all these coupons to Rose's as though they had done something wrong. And it sort of blew our minds. And I remember sitting there talking for five minutes about how bizarre that was, that experience, that uh, we didn't like the light, Adam tried to fix it, we broke, ruined our food, paid for our food again, and they gave us the money back and gave us coupons. Here we are, uh, elders at a church that exists because of grace, (laughs) and we were sort of dumbfounded by the grace that was extended to us in this moment. So when Paul uses the phrasing that he uses here in Romans 4, reminding us that what we have from God comes by grace through faith, I think he's saying, in other words, and describing God the way he describes him, which is astounding to us, I think he's saying sort of, yes, I know this story is going to seem a little bit unbelievable and even supernatural, but in case you've forgotten, it's a story that is written by the creator, the author of all things, who can give life to the dead, and who not only can, but has called into existence things which do not exist. And that's the setup. And setup for what? Why am I, I, am I starting here in the closing weeks? We just have a few weeks left in this series. About what we believe. The reason is after spending months talking about the faith that was once and for all given for God's people and what it has to say about God, about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I want us to consider what that faith has to say about us. And specifically, I want to deal with this question today. If we believe, as we've sort of set out in the fall, if we believe in the God of Abraham, who through Jesus Christ gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist, who are we now? And what have we inherited in the ways that Paul refers to that in Romans chapter four? And I think it's important to ask this question because as, as we looked at at the very beginning of this series, even Jesus himself is clear that our hearing and understanding and knowing the right truths as we've endeavored to do in this series so far doesn't guarantee that we will embrace the life that we were made to live over the long haul. In Luke 8, we have this recording of Jesus's words where he says, a third group hears the message, but as time passes, the daily anxieties, the pursuit of wealth, and life's addicting delights outpace the growth of the message in their hearts. Even if the message blossoms and fruit begins to form, the fruit never fully matures because the thorns choke out the plant's vitality. Jesus is acknowledging this very real risk that even after hearing the message, even after walking through and establishing these are the things that we believe about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the scriptures, which we'll get into uh, next week, even after establishing all of that, we can fail to be rooted in the true life-changing faith handed down to us. We can fail to grow up into our salvation and what it means for the life that we are meant to live. And I think these particular words, the reason this is probably the third time you've heard me, uh, put, seen me put them on the screen in this series, I think these particular words are pretty incisive for us who live busy lives, who are constantly threatened by all sorts of anxieties and concerns about money and temptations to just build a good life. They are a reminder that we don't stop at knowing the right things. We're called to allow that knowledge, those truths to change who we are, to know who those truths make us to be. And the summary of what we've said about God, I'm not gonna re-preach, don't worry, the fall, but, but we've said that we have a God who creates, who loves, who corrects, who forgives and redeems. We've, we've seen that humanity in response to that God alternately obeys and disobeys and wanders away and repents and does all that over and over again. And so into that story, God sent Jesus who makes a way for a rescue from that cycle, who sets into motion the unfolding of God's kingdom and who leaves, physically leaves with a promise to return to bring culmination to the whole story and to make all things new and to set everything right. And then the last part of the series we looked at Uh, In the fall was the Holy Spirit, who God sends as Jesus departs as the source of his presence, the source of his purpose, and the source of his promise. We have God with us in an ongoing way. Jesus was God with us, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God incarnate. And then as he leaves, as his body leaves, his spirit comes to to leave with us the presence and the purpose and the promise of God. Okay? So that's the faith. That's a, that's a very simplistic summary of the faith given to us once and for all. And Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 1. I'll read the part about Jesus and the Spirit here all together. He says, In Jesus, we hear a resounding yes to all of God's many promises. So we're, we're leaning in this conversation into the promises that God's been making for centuries. And he says, Jesus is a resounding yes to all of those promises. This is the reason we say amen to and through Jesus when giving glory to God. And then in verse 22, he says, he's marked us with his seal and placed his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, a down payment of the things to come. And as it relates to who God is, that's the essence of our faith. And if we're gonna understand and as Jude admonishes us, struggle hard for that faith given to us it matters that we not just have doctrinal clarity about who God is and what he's done but that we know what it means for who we are who we were made to be who we were saved to be through Jesus and through the work of the spirit and it matters that we have some understanding of what we've inherited that's a language that's used not just in the old testament but in the new testament that as a result of the gospel, we have an inheritance. We have something that's been given to us. And it's not just physical things. It is a way of understanding and seeing and living in the world that we've inherited. And so the question is there, what is it that we have inherited as heirs to Abraham's promise from the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist? So I want to I want to focus on three parts of that inheritance, three truths that I think our faith compels us to believe about our life with God in the world and and to, to build our lives around, to actually live as though these things are true of us. The first one is this. In our salvation, in the gospel, in Jesus, in the faith that has been given to us, we are eternally forgiven and alive. As Paul says, This God in whom Abraham believed is the God who gives life to the dead. And it's everlasting life. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes it this way. He says, As for you, don't you remember how you used to just exist? Corpses, dead in life, buried by transgressions, wandering the course of this perverse world. You were the offspring of the prince of the power of the air. Oh, how he owned you, just as he still controls those living in disobedience. I'm not talking about the outsiders alone. So he's saying, I'm not talking just about people who weren't by birth part of God's family. We were all guilty of following headlong for the persuasive passions of this world. We all have had our fill of indulging the flesh and mind, obeying impulses to follow perverse thoughts motivated by dark powers. As a result, our natural inclinations led us to be children of wrath, just like the rest of humankind. And then this is where the turn in the story happens. But God, with the unfathomable richness of his love and mercy focused on us, united us with the anointed one, Jesus And infused our lifeless souls with life, even though we were buried under the mountains of sin and saved us by his grace. He raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly realms with our beloved Jesus, the anointed, the liberating king. He did this for a reason catch this part too, so that for all eternity we will stand as a living testimony to the incredible riches of his grace and kindness that he freely gives to us by uniting us with Jesus the anointed. For it's by God's grace that you have been saved. You receive it through faith. It was not our plan or effort. It is God's gift, pure and simple. You didn't earn it. Not one of us did. So don't go around bragging that you must have done something amazing. For we are the product of his hand, heaven's poetry etched on lives, created in the anointed Jesus to accomplish the good works God arranged long ago. We have everlasting life because of Jesus. We have been raised out of darkness because of Jesus. We have been forgiven once and for all, because of Jesus. Here's what this means for how we live. You can live without anxiety about whether you're good enough. I know that's easier said than done, but theologically speaking, as it relates to knowing the truth about where you stand with God, if you have faith in what we've talked about, about who God is, and about what Jesus has done, you can live without anxiety about where you stand before God, about how he sees you. You don't have to earn your way in and you cannot earn your way back. I don't care where you've gone or what you've done, you can't and that should be relief for you, not a source of fear because you don't have to earn your way back. Jesus has made the way and by faith, you just say yes and receive his welcome. Yes, let me be clear, you're made for holy living. Yes, that requires awareness and intentionality, something that I think we're going to get into with more clarity in uh, the series that we'll spend a lot of the spring on. This little passage is a bit of a preview. We're going to spend uh, the spring diving into the book of Ephesians. But the starting place for understanding who you are and how you live is this. You are once, And for all time, free from the penalty, from the weight of your sins, of your failures, past, present, future, you are free from them. And as Paul says in verse seven, it's for a reason that you're set free. It's not just for your own sake, though he's clear that God's love for you is is beyond what you can imagine. But he has done this in you For a reason, so that for all eternity you stand as a living testimony to the incredible riches of His grace and kindness. You tell the story of who God is and what His grace is like. So, as you struggle and you will with sin and guilt and embracing God's forgiveness, remember that as always with you and God, the story is not primarily about you, it's primarily about your life as a testimony. To God's grace and kindness through Jesus. So change the way that you think about how you stand before God. Change the way that you think even about the purpose of his grace in your life. Start thinking about your forgiveness and your eternal salvation, your eternal life in this way. It's not a matter of whether you deserve it. It's not a matter of whether you've earned it. It's a matter of of your life, of my life, full of brokenness, often a mess, pointing to God's love and kindness. This is in light of what we have talked about being true about God, about Jesus and the Spirit. This is who we are. We are people who, because of the greatness of God's grace, are forever forgiven and forever alive. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the consequences of our imperfections. Second part I want to talk about tonight is this truth. We are freed for real communion with God. So we are not just in, in a, some kind of formula where God looks down, forgives us, sets us free to eternal life, and then steps back out of the picture. A big part of what eternal life means in the New Testament is weighed down with the clarity about this. A big part of what eternal life means is life where you can now commune freely with your maker where you have actual relationship, actual connection and interaction with the God who made you. In Philippians 3, Paul writes this, when it counts, I wanna be found belonging to him, not clinging to my own righteousness based on law, but actively relying on the faithfulness of the anointed one. This is true righteousness, supplied by God, acquired by faith. I wanna know him, Inside and out, I want to experience the power of his resurrection and join in his suffering, shaped by his death, so that I may arrive safely at the resurrection of the dead. Paul says that knowing him is not only possible, that he has grabbed you and won't let you go. You're not just given permission to know him. And again, you're not In a position where he says, If you try really hard, you can know me. Keep trying, keep climbing. We're given a picture of a God who has reached down and pulled us up to eye level and said, I this is what I want. Jesus made this kind of promise that this is who he was, that this is who he was revealing God to be to his early believers. When he says this, if you hear my voice and abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and that truth will give you freedom. Paul, in what he wrote in Philippians 3, clearly roots his knowing Jesus in the faith as we've talked about it in the preceding weeks, in a God who has always been after us and in Jesus who came to seal that relationship. And he boldly says, so I want to take hold of that. This Jesus who says, you can abide in me. You can live in that kind of communion with me. This means, I think for us, that God's not playing hide and seek with you and this is has been for me um, in the course of my growing up in the faith one of my bigger challenges and as I talk to people it's clearly and certainly not just my problem <laughs> is we have been told God loves you God wants a relationship with you and then we've been sold books about the complicated things that it takes to know the will of God or to know God <clears throat> that's how it's gone and I, and I grew up um, by no one's fault, I blame no one uh, except a faceless machine that I choose to, to sort of keep as a nemesis over here so that I can say I blame no one and just blame that thing. Uh, but mostly I blame, blame my own lack of understanding and my own lack of maturity over the years. But I grew up with this belief that God had a will for your life and it was a needle in a haystack. It was. And it complicated not just what am I supposed to do with my life, but it complicated my understanding of how can I, can I really know God? If, if that part of, if what he wants for my life is so elusive, gosh, he's a step back beyond that. And that's just not the picture that the scriptures paint. He's not playing hide and seek with us. It's true that God is mysterious It's true that sometimes he seems silent for a long time. It's true that we can't control him, that we can't treat him like a vending machine. And knowing him doesn't mean I can just push the right buttons and get whatever I want out of him. That's all true. But I think we need to be clear about this in our day-to-day lives. God's purpose with us from the beginning, with humans from the beginning, and with us from the beginning of our own lives has been communion, to know us and to be known. And he was relentless in this purpose before Jesus, but I think Jesus changes the story in a dramatic way because he is not only, as we've talked about, arrived to break down any remaining barriers between us and relationship with God, but he's done it in a very specific way. That is, he first became one of us and experienced everything that we've experienced, including... If we're honest with the scriptures, moments in his relationship with God where he's not, he seems, God, where are you? Where he asks God for another way, where he experiences anxiety over what is clear that God wants from him and his own. Preference for something else. So Jesus changes the game by coming and experiencing all of that, just like we've experienced it, and then dying on the cross. And that's why Paul writes, I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. Because when we come back to this truth that we are freed now by Jesus for communion with him, and then we arrive in the dark seasons of our lives where it feels like God is silent or absent, the reminder is that we have communion with Jesus even in those suffering seasons. This is not a God who has been far off, who doesn't understand our suffering. Our suffering is not disconnected from God. Jesus suffered and we have communion with him even in the hard, difficult seasons. You are free to pursue him without fear of discovering that he's unknowable that's what this means you were made for a life of knowing him and whatever you have to release or leave behind in that pursuit the promise is that it will be worth it that he wants that relationship with you last truth that i think is a fruit of our Salvation, a fruit of the faith that we've been talking about. We are builders and ambassadors for God's salvation and God's kingdom. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul writes this He has enlightened us to the great mystery at the center of his will. With immense pleasure, he laid out his intentions through Jesus, a plan that will climax. When the time is right, as he returns to create order and unity, both in heaven and on earth, when all things are brought together under the anointed's holy rule. In him, we stand, similar language that we saw in Romans 4 at the beginning, in him, we stand to inherit even more. As his heirs, we are predestined to play a key role in his unfolding purpose that is energizing everything to conform to his will. So the call to us here in this truth that we are ambassadors, that we are builders of the kingdom, that we are, as Paul said, saved so that our lives will be a testimony to the whole world of the richness of the glories of God's grace. What this means is that we need to live our lives as though we're part of this story. Not just as though we're observers of it who are going to gain something for ourselves out of it, but as though you have an active, not a passive, an active role to play in the story because you've seen and believed Jesus. You do have an active role to play in this unfolding s- story. So there's no better time, this, I, I didn't build this sermon around it being the first sermon of 2019, but there's no better time to wake up to this truth than in this season when we are inclined to think about what's going to be different this year. How am I going to order my days and my life in the year to come? I think the call to us is to make a point in our daily lives, in the big moments and the small moments, in setting major life goals and in just planning for our weeks and our days to consider that Jesus is returning to create order and unity and to bring all things together under his rule. That's true. That's happening. It is in motion. And so as we plan our lives as we think about the goals and the point of our days and our year, I think it's incumbent on us to think about that fact and to think about the fact that we're heirs to that, that we are predestined, we were coded, we were made. The point of our creation was for us to play a part in what Jesus is definitely doing, to play a key role in his unfolding purpose. And so, my encouragement to you is to ask yourself, how can I, this year, this week, tomorrow, be part of what Jesus is doing? He is energizing, we're told here, energizing everything to conform, to see and believe that the will of God, the the rule of Jesus is good. That that is the life that is really life. What is my role in participating in that? How can I build my days, my hours, my year around the truth that I was made and saved to be an ambassador for that coming reality? Let's pray.